In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Late one night I received a frantic text from a young man that I knew here in Queens. And he told me in that text that his dear grandma had suffered a massive stroke and her prognosis was not good. Just a few minutes later that I was in my car circling around Elmhurst Hospital looking for a parking spot. And with great prayer, I entered into that hospital room and there was an entire family, maybe 20 or 30 people, in the middle of a family crisis. Some, some people were fiddling with their phones but doing literally nothing productive at all. One man was clearly drunk because that was the only way that he could deal with his guilt. He came up to me and said, it's all my fault if I only would have been there. And then there were some people that were, were there crying in the hall. In the very center of the room was a beloved family member. And she was in a coma near the end of her life. There was a very kind social worker there, very kind, with a smile on his face. And his purpose in the whole thing was to help the family in crisis deal with death. And he came over and he said to me, the prognosis for this woman is, is not good. She will die soon. And then she began, he, he began to tell me that I don't use the word death when I'm dealing with a family who's in crisis. He said, when I talk to families that are losing a loved one, I use a phrase like, she's moving on. This kind man was doing everything in his power to, to comfort this family, even to the point of choosing his vocabulary with, with great care. In the last 200 years or so here in American culture, we have become very good, very, very good at being kind in the face of death. Have you noticed there has been a subtle change in vocabulary and approach? Here in the United States, people don't die anymore. They, they move on. Here in the United States, people don't die anymore. To use the words of Mary Baker Eddy, founder of Christian Science, they, they pass on. Here in the United States, we don't buy death insurance we buy life insurance. Here in the United States, we generally don't talk about funerals, not anymore, not even really memorial services. Now we have celebrations of life. One, commentary, one commentator wrote this about, about the subtle change in vocabulary and approach. He wrote, it's gone from pain, grief, sorrow, and crying to celebration." Even in the vocabulary that we use about our homes, a great change has taken place. We used to invite people, family and friends, into the parlor for conversation. 
But then in World War I, when there was a flu epidemic here in the United States, families would often lay out their dead in the parlor, and it became known as the death room. Well, interior decorators didn't really like that phrase, parlor or death room, so they began to use the phrase that we use today. It's called now the, the living room. That's why that came about. It used to be that Christians would gather in churches, but right outside the windows, literally of the church, where this was a cemetery. But now we've changed to burying our dead in secular, nondescript cemeteries with nice words that with titles like Forest Lawn. We have become very good as a culture at being kind, at using euphemisms to cover over what death really is. Well, let's just be honest for just a second. Euphemisms and nice words are simply lipstick on a dead body. Today, we're bringing to a close our sermon series, How to Survive the End of the World. And you have received encouragement and clear teaching from God's word about what will happen at the end of the world. You've been encouraged to stay together as a congregation of Jesus. You have heard the encouragement and been urged to stand firm until the end. You have been encouraged to keep your lamps burning until Christ, our bridegroom, returns. And I don't mean to undermine the clear teaching and the right teaching that you've received so far, but what if we did all of those things and then we died? See, buried may be hidden in that title, How to Survive the End of the World is our real goal. How not to die in the end of the world. That's our real goal, isn't it? Not to die either spiritually speaking or physically. How not to die at the end of the world. And that's what this sermon series is really about. We don't need euphemisms. They're not going to help us. We don't need nice words and kind social workers. What we need is someone or something to bring death to death. We need someone or something to become death and hell for death and hell. That's what we need. So today we're not going to skirt around the edges of the issue. Instead, we're going to go right to the heart of what we need to hear. And that is to learn from the Apostle Paul how not to die. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Listen closely. He says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in, a man, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed 
is death. There is nothing natural about death. Nothing at all. It is very unnatural. It is our enemy. And when we look at a dead body, we can know right away the cause of death. It's never a heart attack. It's never stress. Or whatever the doctors tell you, the cause of death is always the same. Human sin. It's been passed down from Adam all the way down to us, and so we will die. We will die because of our sin. Death, you might say, is the very best terrorist, or the very worst one, however you want to look at it. Death does not care whether it's a baby, or a son, or a daughter, or a mom, or a dad, or a husband, or a wife, or a brother, or a sister. Death does not care. It saps, it kills, it murders. It is a terrorist. There's nothing natural about it. It is our last enemy, the Bible says. And so we need someone or something to bring death to death, to kill our enemy. And Jesus Christ is that person. First, Jesus Christ, our King, not like other kings. Unlike other kings, He ruled for you from the wood of the cross, making a payment, conquering our enemy sin forever, taking it away. Then Jesus Christ met death on His own battlefield. And death made the worst mistake that it ever could have made, and death swallowed Jesus Christ whole, putting Him But death right away became frustrating. Death could not corrupt the Son of God's body. Not even for three days does death tried to corrupt his body, but it didn't work. And then Jesus Christ, the Son of God, picked up his own life by his own power. Death swallowed Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But Jesus Christ burst through the stomach of death and left a hole as wide as the Son of God. He chopped off the head of the grim reaper. And he did it for you. In rising from death, Jesus Christ became death for death. In rising from the dead, Jesus Christ became hell for hell. In fact, if Jesus Christ would have wanted to, he could have had a funeral for death and marked it by saying, Here lies death, forever defeated by Jesus Christ, Son of God. The Corinthian congregation believed this. It is a historical fact, beyond doubt, that Jesus is alive. But they had a problem, and they doubted that this unique event would impact them. What does the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they were asking, mean to me? And so he told them. He addresses these doubts with a theological word picture, and he draws from the Old Testament. He says, For all in Adam, for, in, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn. 
Christ the first fruits. Then, when he comes, those who belong to him. In Old Testament times, God's people would bring what's called a wave offering before God at the very beginning of the harvest, and they would wave it before God. This is what is recorded in the Old Testament about that. God told his people, when you enter the land I'm going to give you, and you reap its harvest, bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. He is to wave the sheaf before the Lord, so it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. You see what is going on here? The day after the Sabbath, Jesus Christ went before the Father and he waved before the Father his resurrection from the dead. And that is a promise of the gigantic harvest that is to come. There is a resurrection for all those who are in Christ from the dead. Jesus Christ's resurrection is a down payment. It is the first fruit for you and all of those you love in Christ. In this world, people will give all kinds of answers to the question, how are you going to survive in the end of the world? And specifically, we're addressing this question, how are you not going to die at the end of the world? Alan Sinclair, he gave his answer. His wife a little over a year ago, she died of breast cancer, and he loved her so that the moment that her heart stopped, the doctors drained her entire body of blood and replaced it with antifreeze. And then they put her on a plane and flew her to Michigan, and her body is there stored at 320 degrees below zero in the hope of the day that science will finally catch up and understand how to resurrect people from the dead. It's called cryon. Let me ask you a question. Isn't it better to hope in someone who is already risen from the dead? Isn't it better to hope in someone who picked up his own life and walked out of the grave then, then in a false hope that will leave people dead at the end of the world. Today, God's word is asking each one of you to put your hope in Christ, the King. Because he has burst a hole in the stomach of death as wide as the Son of God. He has chopped off the head of the grim, grim reaper, even though the grim reaper is widely flailing, even in this moment. But the day is coming, and it is coming soon, when mom and dad, sons and daughters, and brothers and sisters, and all those you love in Christ will rise Put your hope in Christ, the King. As I was speaking with that social worker, I felt bad for him, in a sense. I was grateful for what he was doing. But I also felt badly for him because his hands were tied. 
He was doing everything that he could to, to comfort that family in crisis, but he could not give to them a firm hope in the resurrection from the dead. So I thanked him for what he did, and then I asked him to lead me and those 20 to 30 people into a place where I could speak to them. And I cracked open my Bible to a page written just for people who are grieving loss. And I read these words of Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though they die. And in that moment, nobody was playing with their phones. Nobody was drinking. Nobody was even crying. Because in that moment, they were beginning to hope. You know, each year that passes by here at Church Foundation, we're bringing this church year to a close here today. Our hope grows because with every day that passes, the Lord Jesus coming is closer. Put your hope in Christ again. Amen.